Hi, it's me again. <laughs> Can I tell you all a little secret? You promise not to tell anyone. This includes you online. I don't like John chapter 14. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to admit that you don't like parts of the Bible, but I'm admitting it. Actually, when I was a teenager um, at you know, the church that I grew up in, I was speaking during a youth Sunday service and I said at the microphone that the book of Deuteronomy, I think, was boring. And my pastor pulled me aside afterwards and he said, uh, word of wisdom, don't say that anything in the Bible is boring because then people won't read it. So, sorry, Pastor John, if you should so happen to be watching, I don't like this chapter. <laughs> sorry. It scares me a little to talk about this chapter, not because of what it says, but because of how it was, has been used in my life, and I imagine probably in yours as well. Um, let me give you an example from my own life. Um, I grew up in a really loving, supporting family and church. Um, my church identified God's calling on me like a decade before I did. And people told me for a decade before, God told me that you were supposed to go into ministry. And I'd say, that's crazy talk. I'm supposed to go into astrophysics. That's where my passion is. And then over and over and over again, they did. And they fostered my gifts. And people supported me for years and years and years that I, I went off to college and the understanding basically was that I was going to go to school and then go to seminary, get my degrees, come back home to the mother church and eventually take over as the pastor. So I went off to college, me, the golden child, the chosen one, he who can do no wrong, and my faith and my life and my whole mental state completely collapsed. A series of unfortunate events I don't need to get into right now. But it turns out I didn't really have much of a faith at all. When you took away the familiarity of that church building, of the familiar rituals, of the voices, of the predictability of the whole thing, the friends, the family, the people, when you took all of that away, it turns out there was actually nothing there between me and God. Turns out that whole thing, I barely believed any of that. I just had felt very comfortable in a church, this church, um, with these people. So it all kind of fell apart. But then from the ashes, my second year, um, God started to bind me again and rebuild me in, in new ways, in strange ways. I, I started to actually read the Bible um, for the first time. I started to study the Bible. I was in school for Bible, after all, so I hope I would be studying it. And being introduced to this world beyond just the world of my single American Baptist church in central Jersey, that turns out there's a much bigger expanse of Christian history, of Christian thought, of, of ways people have thought about God and talked about God and, and related to God and I'm, I'm starting to expand my worldview. 
I get excited. This is like the first time that I have a faith of my own. I feel like, you know, when babies first start to learn how to walk and then they just want to run everywhere and run into walls and trip over tables and stuff like that. They just can't help their enthusiasm. That's how I was with my faith. That was me. So I took that enthusiasm home with me my, my junior year, after my junior year of college, and uh, took up an internship at that church where I was going to work with the pastor that had known me my entire life, in the congregation that had known me my entire life, that had raised me up as a child in this church from the time that I was about nine years old and onward. The church that my grandfather had pastored for a couple decades, that my dad grew up in, this like family, communal church that meant everything to us. I was going to get to work there, and I was going to get to preach and teach and go visit people in the hospitals and learn what it means to be a pastor on the inside. Find out how the sausage gets made. It's gross, by the way. So I took that enthusiasm with me home, and I wanted to share some of the goodness and the joy that I had found. So I preached this sermon called The God Box about how we try to put God in a box and how God always breaks out of the box, and how, um, so I, I, I built the whole thing off of this metaphor that I had read in Rob Bell's first book, Velvet Elvis, in which he said that our beliefs, what we call theology, the things we believe about God, should be like the springs of a trampoline. They're tools to help you jump, to help you get up closer to God. They are uh, tools. But instead, we use them like bricks, and we try to build with them. The problem with that is that if one brick falls apart, the whole thing crumbles. Right? So when our belief systems are used to build something instead of used as a tool to get ourselves higher, what happens when that one thing falls apart? What happens when one of those bricks was a literal six-day creation? And then you learn about evolution, and suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, the whole thing crumbles. This is a problem. So I preached this sermon. It, I didn't question any doctrines. Let me say that out front. But I questioned the idea that you can't question doctrines. And that was enough to get a very angry elder coming to me and accosting 20-year-old Zach in between services, yelling and screaming with steam coming out of his ears, saying, doctrine is important. Walls are important. They protect people who don't know any better from dangerous heresies. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. You don't get to pick and choose what you believe. You can't water down the gospel. Which, you know, 20-year-old me took very well. And apparently the elders themselves had an emergency meeting and were so concerned with the heresies spewing out of my mouth that the next time I preached that summer, the pastor gave me a topic to preach on and then required me to give the sermon to him first to make sure that it was all above water. Another time that summer, I brought along a copy of the Bhagavad Gita to a young adult Bible study, which, if you're not familiar, the Gita is a Hindu holy text. I was studying uh, Asian philosophy in school at the time, was reading the Bhagavad Gita, and came upon these passages that like, so beautifully stated truths about Jesus and Jesus' relation to humanity, um, just from a totally different perspective, right? Because I believe that if, if it's true, it's God's because there is only one 
truth. So truth is truth, right? I mean, even St. Augustine said that, but I didn't know that at the time. So I brought this to show people this beauty, and I know that the writer's talking about Brahma and not Yahweh. I know that. But the truth was true regardless. Well, once again, I was accused of being a heretic by my own friends who went to the pastor and who said that I am spewing heresies, that they would stop giving to the church as long as I was on the payroll, that um, I was dangerous. And so the pastor called me into his office and he said, he made me give a full account of my faith. Um, and once again, told me, there is no place for that sort of writing in a, a church. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through Brahma, not through Vishnu or Krishna, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <sighs> he also told me that um, it's okay to talk about these things in your house or at college, among other students, but don't bring it to church because the sheep can't handle that and you will lead them astray. You have to give them just kind of the simple sort of uh, spiritual milk, I suppose, because uh, I don't want to give you something dangerous you can't handle. Well, I respect you all too much to do that. <laughs> I know that each and every one of you is seeking, that each and every one of you has a connection to God, that you can handle a good question or two. So after that summer was over, I never went back. <laughs> and after that summer, I made a vow that if I ever became a pastor, that there would never be any question or topic that would be off limits. Spiritual growth happens when you honestly and faithfully grapple with God and with the Bible, not when you're spoon-fed easy answers. And I hope you know that. There are no taboo topics here. There are no questions or ideas that will get you in trouble. We are all in this together. But you know what's tragic about this chapter, and in particular that one verse that keeps getting yanked out and beaten over the head, is that when you reduce it all to that one soundbite that's used to exclude people, you miss the richness of the dialogue that's happening and realizing that Jesus is talking, Jesus means it in the exact opposite way. John 14 is Jesus' farewell address. This is the end. The end of his earthly life, his ministry with people. This is Maundy Thursday. Jesus is with his disciples, his best friends together. And he's giving them one final farewell address, one final prayer over them as he is, they are finally coming to terms with the fact that he is not going home with them after this visit. And as they're celebrating that feast of Passover, Jesus' mood changes. And he breaks the bread and he pours the wine. He says, this is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. He goes on and says that one of the 12 of them, these people who had traveled together, lived together for three years, one of you that you know so personally and so well is going to betray me to death. And the rest of you will scatter like sheep without a shepherd. 
You feel the fear starting to come into their minds that this is no longer a safe place. Jesus is no longer a comforting person. This is no longer a safe upper room. I'm starting to feel anxious. My muscles are tightening. Jesus is talking about death. And like any of us who have been around a person who is dying, the disciples did what we always do. And they tried to stop him from talking about it. No, it's going to be fine. We don't want to talk about it. But Jesus keeps pressing. And Peter says to him, well, where are you going? And why can't I come with you? Peter doesn't get it. Jesus is talking in spiritual terms. Peter's trying to nail down logistics because that's what we do when we're afraid of losing someone. We focus on the details. And Jesus sees through their fear, their anxiety, and tries to comfort them by saying to them, I am going to my father's house, and where my father is, there is plenty of space for everyone. And when I am finished making that space, I'm coming back for you. The disciples, however, were operating out of this false sense of scarcity that we often do, in which they're afraid that there's not going to be enough for them all of a sudden, that they're not going to be safe, they're not going to be secure. That despite walking with Jesus for three years, there is a chance that there may not be room enough for them in the kingdom. That maybe after Jesus is gone, they, don't, they forget how to do this whole thing and they fall apart and everything goes wrong and they end up in the bad place. They're worried about being excluded. But Jesus has invited them to think past that into this new kingdom economy where there is more than enough. There is always more than enough for everyone. And so obviously this is where they get the message, right? Of course not. They never get the message because they're us. Thomas says to him, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> We've never been there. How are we supposed to know the way? A week earlier, Thomas was the one that said, hey, let's go to Jerusalem that we might die with him. But now he's getting cold feet. He's wavering. If Jesus is going to go, how will we know the way to follow? See, in the ancient world, the afterlife was a tricky place. The, the Jews didn't really have a robust teaching about the afterlife. They still don't. Um, they're more concerned about the here and now, which is, I think we could probably learn from, but that's besides the point. But all the surrounding people around them did have very robust teachings about the afterlife. The, the Greeks and Romans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, everyone around them had a very anxious afterlife filled with chance, filled with uncertainty. Like when you go, it, it, like the Egyptians, you go and your heart gets taken out and weighed against a feather. And depending on how heavy your heart was and your guilt depends on whether or not you get to go to the good place or the bad place. Right? In, in, in Greek thinking, it really was up to the whim of the gods when you got there. So there was nothing you could do in life that would assure that you'd be taken care of in death. It was all just luck and chance. And you can already feel the muscles tightening and the anxiety around that. And Thomas and the rest of them are looking death right into its deep, dark, frightening eyes. And they are suddenly terrified, realizing how little control they have over the whole situation. 
And if Jesus isn't going to be with them at the moment of their death, how can they possibly know how they'll be reunited? The disciples are grasping at straws, asking Jesus for a road map. But he responds to them from the depths of his relationship with them. He says to them, do not worry. All will be well. It's all right. However it is you want to translate that. Do not worry. You know the way to the Father because you know me. I am the road itself. I am the truth itself. I am life itself. There's no way to get lost because I'm the way itself. And of course, all this talk of paths and roads and destinations, this is all a metaphor because we know God's not constrained by physical space. There's no literal path to God because Jesus is God. Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Spirit who hovered over the waters of creation, who filled the disciples at Pentecost. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus because they are one in the same. Nobody comes to Pottstown either except through Montgomery County. But nobody bats an eye at that. <laughs> they are one within the other, within the other. It's not a statement of exclusion, but of comfort. It's a word that we need to hear today as well. Because I look around our country, our state, our world, and I think, what's the way forward? What is it that is going to get us out of this mess? What ideology or group of people are going to be the ones that save the day finally? But the way forward is not through military might. It's not through the latest technology, no matter how smart the latest AI seems. It's not through big government or small government or lower taxes or better social safety nets or stricter gun laws. The way to life is the same as it has always been. Jesus is the way. And I like to think of the Holy Spirit as our GPS, our God-positioning spirit. The way to purpose, the way to God, the way to joy, the way to peace. It's always been Jesus. So follow Jesus' way. The example that he gave us, the teachings that he left with us. Get to know Jesus personally in prayer. Let the Spirit guide your actions. If you want to find God, start taking Jesus seriously. Get to know him and listen. And remember, friends, we are all journeying along this same path together. So be honest about where you are. Be generous with each other because we are all in this together. Let us pray.